Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's election in Hungary, which has outsized significance, particularly for here in the United States, since the Republican Party and their propagandists like Tucker Carlson and right-wing organizations like CPAC see the future of the GOP entrenched as a one-party state following the illiberal model created by Hungary's Orban. Joining us is Kim Lane Shapley, a professor of sociology and international affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. Her latest book is 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. And we will discuss her article at the American Prospect, How Hungary's Orban Turned the Ukraine War to His Own Advantage. Then we'll examine the Russian philosophers and intellectuals who influence Putin's thinking, such as the anti-Semitic ultranationalist Alexander Dugin and the former admirer of Hitler and Mussolini, Ivan Ilyin, and Lev Gumilyev, whose theory of passionarity Putin embraces as biocosmic energy and inner force for Russian development on a march with an infinite genetic code. Joining us is Marlene Lorel, the director of the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies, director of the Illiberalism Studies Program and research professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she works on the rise of populist and illiberal movements in post-Soviet Eurasia, Europe and the US. She explores how nationalism and conservative values are becoming mainstream in different cultural contexts and focuses on Russia's ideological landscape and its outreach abroad. Then finally we'll assess who is going to blink first in the standoff between Germany and Putin, who is demanding the Germans pay for Russian gas in rubles, which the Germans consider blackmail. Joining us to discuss how we are having the wrong debate, which is about finding more and more oil and gas, as opposed to kicking the habit and turning to clean energy and renewables, is David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego. He also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to nearly net zero emissions for global warming gases. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming, and Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide 
breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Kim Lane Shapley, who is a professor of sociology and international affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at the Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. After 1989, Shapley studied the emergence of the constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. Her latest book is 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. And she has an article at the American Prospect, How Hungary's Orban Turned the Ukraine War to His Own Advantage. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kim Lane Shapley. Lovely to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Kim. And obviously, the election is taking place Sunday today in Hungary, and uh, the results will be out soon, or the polls will close soon. I don't know how long it'll take to get the results, but at the moment, the world, I think, or at least the Western world, is absolutely appalled at the war crimes that are emerging from from Ukraine as the Russians withdraw from towns around uh, Kiev, leaving behind dead Ukrainian civilians and booby traps, etc. Would any of that be playing in Hungary and would would it affect today's vote? Well, you ask such a good question because Viktor Orban has long been uh, Vladimir Putin's best friend in Europe. So unlike all the other leaders in EU member states, Orban has welcomed Russian um, engagement with Hungary um, and has welcomed Putin to Budapest. And in fact, Orban took a trip to Moscow just two weeks before the war broke out and came back triumphant, saying, and this was a big part of his election campaign, saying Russia has promised us cheap gas for the foreseeable future. So that was a big part of his campaign. And then, of course, when the war broke out, he had to pivot. And Orban is sort of a master of political messaging. So in fact, even though Orban has, you know, cozied up to Putin and is Putin's best buddy, Orban has turned his relationship with Putin into an advantage. And and he's done this by saying, well, I am the peacemaker. You know, I am the only one who can really talk to Putin and talk to the EU. And, you know, he's basically pulling a miracle. You know, I'm in between. I am open and reasonable and I can talk to them. The other thing, of course, he's been saying is that is that as a peacemaker, what he's been opposed to is taking sides, you know? So even though he voted for EU sanctions because he would have been run over by a tank if he hadn't been, um, he has refused to allow weapons to go to Ukraine through Hungary until very recently he was also refusing to station NATO troops in Hungary. You know, and of course, Hungary shares a border with Ukraine, so Hungary is a frontline state. And all of this was, was done during the election campaign while, you know, Orban says, I will be the one that will protect Hungary from being drawn into this war <laughs> on either side. And so that's actually played reasonably well. You know, he's turned this disadvantage, what would you know what would be an obvious disadvantage, into something that makes him look much more like an international statesman. Um, now, the opposition in Hungary pivoted immediately and 
you know, their big slogan going into election day is a vote for Orban is a vote for Putin. And Orban yesterday gave a rally in which he said, you know, Putin is not on this ballot. I am on this ballot and I put Hungary first, <laughs> you know, so the opposition had what they thought was a strong message. And it might have been a strong message, except for the fact that almost all the media are singing from Orban's song sheet. There's just not really a free press in Hungary. And so even though the opposition was trying to make take advantage of this, you know, Ukraine war for its its messaging, it's not so clear to me how many Hungarians actually heard that message. And do you think they heard the message when Zelensky, Ukraine's president, recently spoke to the European Parliament uh, where he said Lithuania stands for us, Latvia stands for us, and then he turned to Hungary and his tone changed and said, Hungary, I want to stop here and, and be honest. Once and for all, you have to decide for yourself who you are with. Listen, Victor, do you know what's going on in Mariupol? Did that get through, do you think? Uh, it got, I think it got through, um, but it was immediately countered. You know, and Orban says, yes, we chose sides. We are for Hungary. Right. So in other words, playing the nationalism card and saying, you know, we don't want to get drawn into this fight. This fight's not about us. Now, the thing is that the fight is a little bit about Hungary. And this is something where Orban has, again, been over many years building up an advantage. So uh, Hungary, like I said, shares a border with Ukraine. And just over the border into Ukraine is an area, Transcarpathia, it's called, where the dominant group uh, in that part of Ukraine are actually ethnic Hungarians, and the dominant language is Hungarian, which is to say there's Hungarians just over the border into Ukraine. That's a relatively recent border by historical standards. Um, and so not only has Orban given the right to vote in Hungarian elections to the Ukrainians just over the border, but the same things that have bothered Russia have also officially bothered Orban because the government, not Zelensky's government, but the Ukrainian government before Zelensky passed a law that made Ukrainian the official language and got rid of all the bilingual schools that had been very common, especially around the edges of Ukraine, where there are ethnic minorities that don't speak Ukrainian. And what that did was it closed all the Hungarian dual language schools. And Orban has been on a campaign against Ukraine ever since. <laughs> And so, for example, Orban was blocking high-level meetings between NATO and Ukraine going back to 2018. Um, and, I mean, there were some meetings going on anyhow, but NATO operates by consensus. And one blocking state uh, prevented more integration between NATO and Ukraine. But it also means that the nationalist Hungarian public has already been riled up against Ukraine. So this idea that somehow one speech by Zelensky could overcome that is something that, you know, would it would take more than one speech. In other words, Orban has already portrayed the government in Ukraine as acting against Hungarian interests. But there's a lot more at stake, isn't there, that came in this election t today in Hungary with this illiberal leader who, if he gets reelected, then Hungary will definitely sink into a a more totalitarian state and be a complete outlier. And even the Polish government next door that supported Orban are obviously have a completely different attitude to what's happening in Ukraine. And 
I suppose to some extent, if all the media you had, if, if here in the United States the only media you had was Fox News, you would have an illiberal polity here, which you've got, what, 70-plus percent of the Republicans believing in the big lie. So mm-hmm. it happens here. It works, propaganda. Mm -hmm. And it will be further deeply cemented into Europe. And for all intents and purposes, the country will be lost uh, in the sense that, you know, the world is divided between frail democracies and the rule of law and encroaching kleptocracies and autocracies. So here you'll have one in the heart of Europe. And even the opposition leader, Marquise, he seemed to be pretty... Uh, sceptical of his own chances uh, in today's election. In an interview with the Financial Times in February, he put his chances of victory at 40%. So there's a lot at stake, isn't there, beyond just this one authoritarian leader in Europe? Absolutely. So this, this if Orban wins this election, it will be his fourth consecutive win and his fifth win overall because he had been prime minister once before but four elections in a row is, is not a sign of his great popularity. It's a sign of how much he's rigged the elections. So if you look at opinion polls in Hungary, Orban actually is running about the same level of popularity as Donald Trump did in the United States. So his base is sort of 30 to 35 percent of the public overall. Um, and then there's a bunch of people who sort of either hold their nose and vote for him because there isn't another sort of conservative candidate on the ballot, or there are people who have been bought out, literally. I mean, if you have a government job and you don't vote for Orban, you might lose your government job, and they have a number of ways of monitoring this. So between the kind of election fraud and the base, you know, he can get to the levels he needs to win parliamentary majorities. Now, it's a sign of how far Hungary has gone already down the road toward authoritarianism, that the election is just not happening on a level playing field. So in this election, Orban is running against a six-party coalition. That six-party coalition consists of a right-wing party that until very recently was a neo-Nazi party. They sort of expelled the Nazi-ish, the most Nazi-ish wing of their party in preparation for this election so that they could work together with a variety of parties on the left. So this is a very, this is a kind of strange bedfellows coalition. And the reason why they have to run together is that the election system is designed so that um, essentially it's a, well, most of the districts that are being elected today are elected the same way as the U.S. You know, as we say, a first past the post, winner take all, one round election. And those kinds of systems only really work if you've got essentially two parties, because as soon as you bring in a third party or a fourth party, it splits the vote. (laughs) And that's how Fidesz has been able to win so far is because those six parties, you know, have split. The right goes one way, the left goes another way, and then Orban comes up through the middle and, and wins. So with this coalition now, that it's the first time Orban's really been challenged within the parameters of his own election system. That said, it's going to be very hard for the opposition to win, even if they have majority support. So the election projections, you know, once you figure in all the ways Orban's rigged the system, the opposition would have to win between three and six percent more of the vote than Orban to get a simple majority in the parliament. 
But if Orban wins, um, you know, again, the estimates are between 43 and 46 percent of the vote, he can win two thirds of the seats in the parliament, which is to say this is a really stacked deck. So if the opposition manages to get a simple majority, it will have to be in something like landslide territory. And that's because of the way the election system was rigged, even before anybody cast a cast a single vote today. So, Kim Len Shepley, another reason why this election in Hungary is, is more important than just Hungarian politics is, is to do with the fact that the Republican Party is in, enamored with Orban, that it's one of its top spokespeople, the Fox News host, Tucker Carlson spent a whole week there literally being a supplicant to uh, Orban and broadcasting his program from there. And, the, and CPAC are going to have a have their convention in Hungary coming up soon. I mean, what's happening in America is, it, with the Republican Party is similar to what you just described, how Orban has taken over the electoral machinery and guaranteed victory. They're trying to do the same thing here. And even though Trump is the one that's promoting the stop the steal, in many ways, people like Mitch McConnell, who hate Trump, are still going along with stop the steal. Uh, so in effect, they're using Trump because they like the idea of this electoral advantage that uh, they can literally cheat rather than compete. So this is also an American story, is it not? Absolutely, it's an American story. So, you know, so Hungary has become... Um, to people on the American right, what Sweden used to be to people on the American left, right? It's proof of concept. It says, you can run a country like this, and so why not here? And so some of that on the Republican side in the U.S. is Orban's public rhetoric. You know, he says he's defending Hungary for Christian Europe. He believes in family values. He's come out strongly against LGBTQI rights. So the whole kind of dog whistle um, uh, social right wing agenda of the American Republican Party is something that it looks like Orban has been defending. And of course, he has very strong rhetoric against liberals in his country and, you know, on and on. So the public rhetoric is something that the that the that the Republican Party in the U.S. feels that it can mirror. But what I'm worried about is that the Republicans are learning this other lesson which is that, you know, it's so 20th century to win an election by stuffing ballot boxes or, you know, election irregularities on the day. Now, the way that dictators win elections is they change all the ground rules so that even before a vote is cast, they've won the election. And so what you see happening in the U.S. now is Republican state legislatures all over the country are now starting to kind of pre-rig the election so that, for example, for the presidential election in 2024 coming up here in the U.S., they're trying to uh, create a system through which the popular vote, if it doesn't go their way, can be simply canceled and the Republican state legislature can directly vote presidential electors for Trump or whoever else the Republican candidate is. So this goes way beyond Trump, actually. This goes to the pre-rigging the election through the rules. And I'm really concerned in the U.S. because I watched it in Hungary that the opposition to this just doesn't catch on. 
that this pre-rigging of rules is where all the action is these days. Instead, the opposition in the U.S., as in Hungary, thought they could fix everything with voter turnout. <laughs> but, you know, voter turnout is not the story if, the, if it's almost impossible under the rules for any level of turnout to actually win an election. So the Republicans are looking to Orban, I think, for guidance on how you stay in power forever and still appear to look like a Democrat. I mean, not small, not capital D Democrat, but you still appear to have a Democratic country. Um, and so, you know, it's a formula for how to do all of that. So if Orban wins again, you know, he gets yet another uh, boost. And remember, CPAC, the, the Conservative Political Action Committee um, in the United States, is having one of its meetings in Budapest in May. And at that moment, you, what you'll see is all these Republican operatives coming to Hungary to meet with all of Orban's political operatives. So this is really, uh, you know, it's become a global phenomenon now, this Hungarian election, and a lot is at stake. Well, Kim Lane Shapley, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And again, I'm speaking with Kim Lane Shapley, who is a professor of sociology and international affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching both at the University of Budapest and the Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of the constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. Her latest book is 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. And she has an article at the American Prospect, How Hungary's Orban Turned the Ukraine War to His Own Advantage. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the Russian philosophers and intellectuals who influenced Putin's thinking. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Marlene Laurel, who is the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, director of the Illiberalism Studies Program, and research professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she works on the rise of populist and illiberal movements in post-Soviet Eurasia, Europe, and the U.S., she explores how nationalism and conservative values are becoming mainstream in different cultural contexts and focuses on Russia's ideological landscape and its outreach abroad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Martin Laurel. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining me. And there's a draft piece of legislation now before the Duma that proposes that all global native Russian speakers should be considered compatriots. So... This is Ruski Mir, the idea of Russia world being put into legislation in the context, of course, of this war in Ukraine. So it seems like a pretty alarming development. 
Yeah, there have been several of these kind of attempts all this last year. They were always blocked at the Duma level. But of course, today, the context is largely different. So we will see if the bill got accepted. But of course, that would be an important change in the Russian legislation if suddenly there was a real kind of uh, legal attachment to the notion of compatriots, which was not the case before. So what do we know about Putin's ties to Alexander Dugin, who was often referred to as Putin's philosopher. Some people refer to him as Putin's Rasputin. He wrote this influential book in 1997, Foundations of Geopolitics, which advocates for Russian rule from Dublin to Vladivostok using military might, disinformation, and leveraging national, natural resources. So what's your understanding of the, of the links between Putin and Dugin? Because I understand that that is required reading for Russian generals to read Dugan's rather bizarre philosophy? Yeah, but that was the case in the late 90s, early 2000, and that's no more the case now. So this, the figure of Dugin has been really overemphasized in the Western media and is really no more an influential person today in Russia, and there is no direct connection between Dugin and Putin that we uh, would know about. So I think it's we should be understanding Putin by really looking at other kind of ideological influence. Dugin is a really radical person. His philosophy is too much kind of sophisticated, esoterical, religious, eschatological to be of any use for the, the Kremlin. So you quoted in, in an article in the Los Angeles Times, Marlene, mentioning Ivan Ilyin, a 20th century emigre who was a fan of Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, is he? does he have influence over Putin? Well, you know, it's difficult for any observer of Russia to know exactly what is happening around Putin. We know that there are a kind of court of advisors and friends around him who are probably giving him some digests of different ideological thinkers. I don't think Putin is himself reading <laughs> Uh, uh, anyone, so he's kind of offered readings or digest or kind of best of of, of uh, several different thinkers. And Ivan Ilin has been one of them. There is a little group around the Kremlin that is really pushing for Ilin's rehabilitation. It's a group of people who have usually very strong orthodox monarchist conviction who are trying to rehabilitate all these religious conservative or reactionary figures for the, the white immigration of the interwar period. So that's one of the possible influence because we know Putin has been mentioning Ilin at several occasions in official speeches, but he's also mentioning all the more kind of Soviet type of uh, thinkers and you know, he's probably also influenced by many, by less visible names, but just by more kind of a Soviet, you know, culture aspect or, or kind of post-Soviet cultural instrument. So I think we should be very careful in not trying to overstate the importance of one ideological source on his decision making. So is one of the influences Lev Gumilev, who uh, has this theory of passionality? Yes, yeah, so Putin has been mentioning Gumilev also at several occasions, not so much about the passionarity theory, but mostly about Gumilev as a theoretician of the unity of Eurasia, the idea that there is a community of destiny of all the nations of Russia and Eurasia to live together. 
So that has been one of the key elements that Putin mentioned at several occasions, has been mentioning all over the is <laughs> 22 years, 20 years old, 22 years old, sorry, in power. Gumilyov has been referred since the early 2000s, but mostly under this kind of Eurasian community of destiny aspect. And again, I'm speaking with Marlene Laurel, who is a director of the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies, director of the Liberalism Studies Program and research professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she works on the rise of populist and illiberal movements in post-Soviet Eurasia, Europe and the US, and she explores how nationalism and conservative values are becoming mainstream in different cultural contexts and focuses on Russia's ideological landscape and its outreach abroad. Now, of course, Dugan was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2015 for recruiting fighters to go into the Donbass to fight the Ukrainians. But nevertheless, even if he's not influencing Putin anymore, he certainly seems to be on board with what's happening he said that Russia is an empire in a sense which is all-absorbing. It's not based on ethnicity or nationality, but on a sense of belonging to the Russian civilization. And he went on in, in an interview in uh, Muscovy Komsolmets just, I think, this week. He said that Putin is a messiah sent to the earth to reunify the Russian civilizations. And he argues that the siege of Kiev is a necessary step in this reunification it will not be complete, Dugan says, until we have united all Eastern Slavs and all Eurasian brothers into a common big space. So I take it, Marlene, that the issue here is, should we really be listening to these grand ambitions of people like Dugan and also Putin himself recreating the Soviet Union or Tsarist Russia? I mean, it seems like what we're learning from this horrible war in Ukraine is that it's sort of a Potemkin village in many ways, Putin's Russia. It's hollowed out by the, the kleptocrats, by the Siloviki, by the oligarchs who have been stealing billions and billions and billions. Is that the real lesson here, or do they talk a good game about reviving an empire? At the same time, they seem to be being defeated by a small army of brave Ukrainians. Yeah, I think we shouldn't be uh, taking too seriously the, this kind of comments by Dugin because it's his job. I mean, he's a publicist. His job is to get media attention and, if possible, the attention of the Kremlin. So he will always be kind of pushing for the more extreme and radical narrative just to try to get the media attention and, if possible, some of the, the politicians' attention. But he's really very far away from everything happening at the Kremlin. I mean, what Putin is saying is, of course, much more important, and we have to take that into consideration. But I wouldn't say that the the, the, the goal of the Russian regimes today, it's really not to retake or recreate the Soviet Union. I think it's a, it's a mistake in interpretation, and that's not what they are saying. What they are saying is that specifically Ukraine is considered for them as a kind of matter of national uh, security and sovereignty, and it's really Ukraine kind of embodying the conflict with the West, with the European Union, and with NATO as being really one of the core elements. And the, the, the Russian strategy was really to try to get 
its vision of what should be the future of Ukraine kind of recognized by the West. That is, of course, they wanted a Ukraine that would be staying inside the Russian geopolitical orbit. Once they understood they couldn't get that from the West, then in a sense their only way of acting was to try to conquer some new territories in Ukraine to try to kind of keep control over some part of Ukraine and have something to kind of bargain. And as you said, they really are getting defeated. And that's a big kind of bitter lesson for for the Kremlin to realize that the state of the Russian military was not what probably Putin was told it is. And so that's a, a big kind of lesson they are learning currently. And they seem to have reorganized their strategy over Ukraine by now really focusing on, on only the south and the east with the goal to keep these territories either for themselves or as a tool for bargaining uh, a, 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 um, a ceasefire or any kind of peace agreement. So I think it's important to realize that the goal is not in itself conquest of territory. The conquest of territory is only do- done as a way to then bargain a geopolitical status that would kind of guarantee that Ukraine cannot join any kind of Western institution. So for me, the geopolitical aspect remains still critical and the kind of territorial one is only only a tool or an instrument to achieve geopolitical gain. But since you study illiberalism, it seems that that the real contest in this post-Cold War world where ideology doesn't seem to play a part. There seems to be the basic struggle is between democracies and the rule of law and the encroachment of autocracies and kleptocracies. And it seems that illiberalism was on the rise. And, you know, you've got Orban, of course, there's an election today in uh, Hungary, which may decide his fate, although he's got the whole system rigged just as much as uh, Putin has this pseudo-democracy in Russia rigged. So where do we stand in this battle? Do you think that what's happening in Ukraine is actually reversing the tide of illiberalism a little? We don't know what the end game is, but how does it strike you in terms of, if you see the world in terms of that dichotomy, that, that the real struggle is between frail democracies and the rule of law and kleptocracies and autocracies? Well, I think illiberalism is going by waves. So there was indeed a kind of a rising waves a few years ago. Then kind of COVID time already slowed it down because it had created kind of all the issues and tensions where the public uh, opinion could reunite in, in uh, managing the, the crisis related to COVID. And now, of course, the, the war in Ukraine is kind of shifting the, the public opinion and the media attention towards something that is mostly a geopolitical fight. I think it's playing an important role in legitimizing NATO and the European Union as an institution in a lot of um, uh, European countries. But I think it's just a moment in history. I mean, the core elements that make this liberal movement getting elected is a much more deeper issue. It's about uh, social economic inequalities, you know, fears of middle classes of losing part of their um, capacity to to develop. It's about long-term existential fear about what it means to live in a globalized world and so on. So I think all these issues, they haven't disappeared. It's just we don't see them now because of the war. But they will, once the war will kind of 
either stop or not be anymore in the kind of at the center of the, the media and the public opinion's attention, all these issues they will reemerge on one way or another. But yeah, I think it's going by a wave and if if Orban is losing the the election today, uh, things to be also changing in in Poland because of the war uh, uh, currently and the fact that Poland is really becoming the kind of the the, the leader in uh, in uh, supporting uh, Ukraine. We will also see how the the far right will be succeeding or not in the the French election that are in about ten days. So there are a lot of kind of uh, back and forth movement, and it seems indeed there is a kind of. The, the, the liberal forces are kind of losing now, but I don't think that's a long-term <laughs> loss. I think that the, the, they will be winning against once the time will be uh, better for them. So because all the problems that they are putting on the table are still largely unresolved. Well, but if you look at Brexit, which is an example of a liberalism, and it's been absolutely disastrous for the UK, you'd think people would wonder about that. Yeah, I think the way the at least the European public opinions are interpreting Brexit is really indeed as a failed example or counter example that it's almost impossible to leave the EU. But I think what Orban and Poland are showing, it's another kind of illiberalism. It's an illiberalism that wants to stay inside the European Union and change the EU structure from the inside. And that version of illiberalism, I think, will remain the main one because indeed the the kind of exiting the EU strategies is is considered by the European public opinion as something too costly and not functional. But changing the EU from the inside, it's what the European uh, populist movement globally wants in France, in Italy, uh, and then, of course, in Central and Eastern Europe. Right, but Orban, for example, and the, and the Polish government, they Orban is, is not just an authoritarian leader, he's also a kleptocrat, and he's using all the European agricultural subsidies to line his pockets and that those of his cronies. And I think only recently did the EU come down on him, and I'm wondering whether at some point or other the EU should consider kicking him out, particularly if he's re-elected by fraud, which would be the case. Yeah, I think the EU strategy, if he's re-elected, would be to punish the government for its authoritarianism and, and kleptocratic, but not to expel. I mean, there is first, there is no mechanism for that in the EU uh, system that would be functional. And then the symbol of expelling a country outside of the EU, a country that is in the middle of Central Europe, especially now that we have the war, I think the symbol would be really too much for the EU to never take that decision. So I think they will be each time trying to find kind of midway decision that allow these regimes to remain in power. And that's a big issue because it's, I mean, it's also delegitimizing <laughs> the EU uh, legitimacy in promoting the rule of law. But I don't think there is any uh, um, option of, of um, having Central European countries being expelled of the EU, especially now that we have the war. So back to Putin in the last couple of minutes here, Marlene. It seems that what Putin offers is gangster government. And although much was said about NATO encroachment towards Russia, and there's obviously a legitimate case there that the Russians have security concerns and there was a certain, certain triumphalism at the end of the Cold War. The American expression is dancing in the end zone which is not particularly helpful, but 
I think Putin is more afraid of the EU than he is of NATO. Isn't he more afraid of a, of a democratic country next door that's thriving, has the rule of law, compared to the kleptocracy that he has? In other words, Putin only offers gangster government. Well, I think he's afraid of both. He's afraid of the purely kind of military aspect of Ukraine potentially becoming a NATO uh, member or having some of the Western militaries able to access Ukraine territory. And then he's afraid of the, the, the kind of color revolution happening in Russia and then suddenly having a growing public opinion that would find that the European kind of democratic model is something that they want for. So indeed, he's also afraid. I mean, if Ukraine was to become a really functional democracy, that would, of course, kind of react, kind of reflect on Russia and on the Russian population. So, But at the same time, he was also very, I think, uh, aware that he still had a large support of the public opinion and that the liberals were a minority in, in in Russia, and so he was feeling, I think, pretty secure on that side, at least until uh, uh, recently, and feeling that he was able to crush any kind of liberal opposition because the public opinion is still uh, in support of him. But yeah, of course, on the long run, it's the EU. It's, it's becoming a member of the EU that is changing a country in terms of its political culture and not becoming a member of NATO. So on the long run, the real question for Ukraine, for example, it's the EU membership is much more important than the NATO membership because that's the one that is transforming the political culture and the institution on the long run. And, you, and of course, put controls public opinion in Russia. And how long will that last? Do you just in closing, Marlene? Do you buy a lot of the analysis that we're hearing? Maybe it's wishful thinking on on the part of some people in the West that there'll be a coup against Putin from within. No, I think there there is very little chances for that. I mean, it's not a zero chances, but I think there are very little chances because the sanctions are so important and impressive and changing. You know, all the kind of the political vision of the Russian elite that now, in a sense, they don't have any reason for a coup if they don't feel they can survive or get rewarded uh, for that. There is no future for the Russian elite so far outside of the regime as it is, in a sense. We have also cut uh, the the chances for them to be able to kind of exit to Europe and so on. So I don't know. I think the, in the first days of the war, there were some people, the Russian elites themselves were taken by surprise and kind of panicking. Now, now I think there is a consolidation around the regime in this feeling that, okay, we have to go through it because there is no really any other way and we are not sure that sanction could be changed uh, globally, so I think so far we are more on the kind of consolidation of the authoritarian regime more than anything else. Well, Marlene Laurel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you so much for uh, the invitation. And again, I've been speaking with Marlene Laurel, who is the director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, director of the Illiberal Studies program and research professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she works on the rise of populist and illiberal movements in post-Soviet Eurasia, Europe, and the U.S. She explores how nationalism and conservative values are becoming mainstream in different cultural contexts and focuses on Russia's ideological landscape and its outreach abroad. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of who is going to blink first in the standoff between Germany and Putin, who is demanding the Germans pay for Russian gas and rubles, which the Germans consider blackmail. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to nearly zero emissions of global warming gases. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming, and Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Victor. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem that by and large, we're having the wrong debate. We're debating where do we find more oil and gas as opposed to how do we get off oil and gas. But that notwithstanding, what's the latest in the standoff in Europe between Putin and, in particular, Germany, where Putin apparently gave the deadline of Friday, April the 1st, to start paying in rubles? The Germans are calling that blackmail. Who's going to blink, or has anybody blinked? Well, I think in the short term, the Western consumers of energy don't have very many choices but to continue buying on whatever terms are available, Russian oil and Russian gas. But what's going to happen, I think, over the longer term is a doubling down on the effort by Western Europe to reduce their dependence on Russian oil and gas. And I think that to some degree is going to spill over and affect the rest of the Western countries as they also try to reduce their dependence on oil and gas more generally. Well, the, apparently the plans are to cut... Russian gas imports by two-thirds by 2022 and phase out Russian oil and gas by 2027. It's impressive. I don't know if the Europeans are going to quite meet those goals. That's pretty ambitious. Uh, in the short term, what they're doing is shifting away from Russian gas wherever possible, in particular importing more natural gas by tanker, so-called liquefied natural gas, LNG, including from the United States, along with a lot of other suppliers. The problem is that gas is extremely expensive because that gas could otherwise be going to Asian markets where it's already at all-time highs. And so there's a very, very powerful incentive for them to, as quickly as possible, to reduce their dependence on gas. Um, but I think it's, it's going to take a little bit of time because you can't turn these big industrial systems around on a dime. And apparently the Europeans, for some reason or other, have entrusted or outsourced the storage of natural gas to Gazprom? Well, they've entrusted some of it to Gazprom. Mostly what they've done is they've entrusted it to the market. And I think this points to one of the larger challenges that Europe faces right now. There was already before this crisis in Ukraine quite a lot of evidence that the Russians were manipulating the supplies of gas into Western Europe. For example, these pipelines that we're always talking about, Nord Stream pipelines, the pipelines across Ukraine, they actually weren't full. 
And then on top of it, Gazprom has control over a lot of the storage in Western Europe or storage that serves Western Europe. And so one of the things that, that many analysts, myself included, have been arguing is that the Europeans should be using greater use of making much greater use not only of energy policy, but also things like antitrust policy, competition policy, to put serious pressure on Gazprom and their other suppliers to to become more competitive. And then over time, of course, to reduce dependence on those supplies. So what is the difference then between energy security and energy independence? Well, I think energy independence is a terrible idea. It turns out that voters love energy independence. So you ask voters if they want energy independence, everyone says yes. Energy independence is a bad is a bad idea when it comes to big commodities like oil and gas, because one of the ways we get security is by having diversity in supply. And so the goal really here is not to make Europe completely independent of outside supplies, nor the United States make make the United States independent of outside supplies. The goal is to have a diversity in suppliers. And then on top of that, to make choices about which suppliers are acceptable. In the case of the Russian supply, the Russian uh, gas, for example, in flowing into your Western Europe has been extremely reliable. The problem is not reliability of Russian gas. The problem is all the money that the Russian state earns from selling that gas that then has been used to finance directly the war in Ukraine. So is there a difference or can you make the difference between oil and gas that comes from dictatorships and oil and gas that comes from democracies? And there's not a lot of the latter, surely. But You've got Russia, a dictatorship, Iran, Saudi Arabia, etc. Some of these regimes are pretty unsavory. I had a Canadian energy expert on the program on a Thursday who was complaining, saying, you know, the U.S. stopped the pipeline from Canada, the Keystone Pipeline. It was supposed to go down to the Texas coast where they refine heavy crude, and instead now the U.S. government is turning to another dictatorship, Venezuela. So is, can you make a case for democratically sourced energy or is there simply not enough of it? Well, I think in the larger picture, ultimately what we have to do is reduce our dependence on conventional fossil fuels precisely because we can't um, uh, distinguish between the exact supplies. And, and oil in particular, that's most difficult to do because oil is easy to transport around the globe and so it's a fungible commodity. Once it's on, on a tanker and in the global market, it can go pretty much uh, anywhere. And so if you want to reduce the amount of money that flows to unsavory regimes, you have to ultimately reduce your consumption and lower the prices of that product. Gas is a little bit different in Europe because in the case of European gas supplies, almost all of it has been coming in by a pipeline, mainly from Russia, but also some from Northern Europe, and then increasingly by tanker as, as LNG. And so because of the fixed nature of these pipelines, it is a little bit easier for the Europeans to discriminate against uh, unsavory suppliers of natural gas and choose better ones. And that'll help them out, I think, a little bit in the short term. As soon as they can reduce their dependence on gas overall, they can start selecting differentially away from the Russians. And again, I'm speaking with David Victor, who is a professor and the Center for Global Transformations Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to near-zero emissions of global warming gases. And he was a convening lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and The Struggle to Slow Global Warming, and Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet. So already the EU has reduced its dependence on coal 
and their aim is to have carbon neutrality by 2050 and to cut emissions by at least 55% by 2030. So they're way ahead of the U.S., at least the Germans are, aren't they? All of Europe is way ahead of the United States. I mean, this is one of the most striking things about climate change policy is that Europe has really emerged as the reliable leader on climate change policy. The United States, sometimes we work on it, sometimes we don't. We flip-flop here and there in terms of our political system. Parts of the United States, like California, will always do a lot. Most of the rest of the United States, not so much. So I think that's just really striking. And and frankly, the Europeans are are going are probably on track to meet their goal of cutting 55% by 2030. So what is our problem? I mean, it's pretty ironic to have Joe Manchin as the chair of the Senate Energy Committee, and he's clearly throwing his weight around, even making sure that a nominee to the Federal Reserve, who was interested in having the Federal Reserve to consider climate change, he managed to block her or, or kill her position. So I'm not blaming it all on Joe Manchin, but the U.S. has the most powerful fossil fuel lobby in the world, does it not? Well, I think part of what this, what's going on here is political polarization. The fossil fuel lobby has a role to play here, lots of other factors at work. But I think the larger problem here is political polarization. The country's divided on a lot of issues. Uh, it used to be not so long ago that the most conservative uh, Democrat would, their voting behavior in the House would overlap with the most liberal of the Republicans. And so you had a kind of middle ground, and that was centrist uh, political behavior. Now, that's just not the case anymore. And so as the country's become more polarized, in part because of the way campaigns are financed, partly because of the way primaries happen, a lot of other things, social media, um, that that on a topic like climate change, where you really need to put together a strategy that that's around the center and holds the center, that's much harder to do. And in Joe Manchin's power is particularly great right now, because you need every single Democrat in the Senate to get anything passed, and he is the 50th senator, and thus plausibly the m- more important than the president of the United States himself in setting up uh, energy policy strategies for the country. So it's difficult, though, to blame the American people for being concerned about the price of gas, and perhaps even to the extent to which they care more about the price of gas than they do about the lives of Ukrainians, which is somewhat the subtext of the situation we have today. But isn't the problem, David, that the people just don't have the alternatives that are at hand? I mean, it's so crazy that you're worried about how much money you're spending on gas, and it is outrageous to see the prices. But if you had an electric car, you wouldn't be buying gas. You'd be saving so much money. So... I think the average American, would, wouldn't they like to have that choice to save money and to buy an electric car? Yeah, so I think that's now happening. And I think that what your question points to the real theory of politics that's at work here, which is we're going to make progress on these problems when we make the alternatives less expensive. And in some cases, like electric cars, we're going to make them less expensive than their rivals. Uh, electricity for for uh, vehicles is now radically cheaper than gasoline, given the high gas prices right now. And I fully expect we're going to see a surge in demand for electric vehicles just driven by this price effect alone. The challenge, of course, is that um, we have policies that flip back and forth. Uh, electric vehicles didn't just come into being autonomously. They came into being in part because of technological innovation, in part because of federal uh, policy incentives, tax incentives, and so on. So if our policies are are flaky, to put it bluntly, 
then we're not going to be able to send the right kinds of long-term signals. The other big challenge is that this just takes time. It takes a couple of decades to fully turn over the vehicle fleet. We're beginning that in some parts of the country, like in California, and uh, it's accelerating very rapidly. But it's going to take a few decades before we can really um, think about very deep cuts in emissions. But ironically, David, the first cars in the at the end of the 19th century were electric. I mean, it, there's a logic to electric motors they're so much simpler aren't they than in the internal combustion engine which is so much more complicated and electric engines have less moving parts and they're, they're sort of more logical in an engineering sense aren't they i think they are more logical in an engineering sense provided you can store enough energy on board and so in the late 19th century there were three major designs of cars what we today we would call cars that were competing one was electric vehicle one was the internal combustion engine, and the other one was actually steam-powered cars. And a lot of people thought at the time steam-powered cars were going to be the winners because they drove the fastest. Uh, they also had tended to blow up uh, and kill the occupants, and they and they required more steam every 20 or 30 miles. So I, I think this is this history is a reminder that's often very hard to know which technologies are going to be winners. And so the internal combustion engine won in part in large part because costs could come down quickly and because you could store a lot of energy on board in the form of liquid fuel. Now, electric vehicles seem to be winning because uh, uh, batteries have, have advanced so so far. And so I, I think this is going to end up being the dominant transportation mode for light-duty vehicles. We'll see what happens with heavy trucks. We'll see what happens with aircraft. Uh, batteries are not, still not good enough for, for uh, aviation. And, um, and, and there's still a lot of play, a lot of uncertainty. So going back to the Germans, they are, as we mentioned earlier, they're aggressively getting off uh, oil and gas and fossil fuels. They've already got off coal. They did shut nuclear down after Fukushima. Are they going to bring it back? There's talk that they might bring it back. Yeah, I think the the political um, opposition to nuclear in Germany is pretty firm. And once you shut off a reactor, it's very hard to bring it back to life. Not impossible, but very hard to bring it back to life. So my expectation is that the Germans are going to double down on renewable power, which means wind from the North Sea and solar power throughout the country. It's not a particularly sunny place, but they're going to build a lot. Um, and in the short term, we're actually seeing, uh, because of this crisis and concerns about gas supply and high gas prices, we're actually seeing a little bit of resurgence in coal consumption in Germany, which, of course, is not good for climate change. But aren't the Germans incentivizing moving to renewables through taxes? I mean, it would be so logical if in the U.S. we paid a higher gas tax, a higher federal gas tax, and that money went to investing in renewables. But it seems to be politically impossible in this country to do that, whereas in Germany, it seems to be have already been done. Well, so it was already, for many European countries, it was already done quite a long time ago because taxes on gasoline have been one of the ways that European governments have funded themselves. Uh, we've taken a different strategy here, and, and the politics of raising gasoline taxes, exactly as you note, are very, very difficult. This is one of the reasons why Efforts in the United States to put a price on what's called a price on carbon, a carbon tax or a cap and trade system where you limit emissions and then you let the market buy and sell the right to pollute, that, that those systems in the United States have often not worked very well because when you put, put a, a very conspicuous price on pollution, uh, you also raise gasoline prices and that generates a huge amount of political opposition. I think it's a huge problem for the country uh, and one of the ways we're getting around that problem politically 
is we're doing less with price measures and more with direct regulation. New fuel economy standards, for example, the, the Biden administration just announced new fuel economy standards late last week. Um, we're going to see mandates. California is mandating simply the end of sales of new internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035, and that's going to drive them out of the marketplace and get them replaced with electric vehicles. And a lot of economists don't like these uh, industrial policy measures, mandates, regulations, and so on, because they're less efficient economically, but they politically often make a lot more sense. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, David, is there any way to incentivize the big energy companies. So instead of spending money on lobbying against renewables and etc., which is what they've been doing and denying climate change, is there any way to incentivize them? I mean, they, they do a lot of greenwashing via their advertising, saying how much they care about the environment and how much they're investing in alternative energy. But I'm not sure that any of that is particularly true. Um, so is there, a, is there a way to incentivize them? You'd think that at the end of the day, they'd want to get into a different business. I think more and more of them are recognizing that the end of the day is now coming and they have to get into a different business. So I'm a, I'm a little more encouraged there. It's still early days for the American companies, but if we look at the European companies and see a much more reliable signal that they have to change, otherwise they're going to lose their license to operate, they're now investing in all kinds of alternatives, uh, which uh, reflect, some of them reflect their core business strategies. You see some European oil and gas companies investing in offshore wind because they're good at building platforms. A lot of them investing in how do you take carbon pollution and put it underground because that's partly what you do when you produce uh, new oil and gas. And so we're starting to see some of that same uh, uh, impetus come into the American firms driven by this fear that they could lose their license to operate and also, frankly, driven by their bankers and their insurance companies, which are who are increasingly refusing to carry coverage and offer finance for projects that are seen as inconsistent with a long-term future of much lower emissions. So just in the last minute, a comment on Russia. is it, What's Russia's future look like? After all, Russia is basically a, a gas station with nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think Russia's future is grim. Uh, sadly, uh, grim futures and insecure futures with nuclear weapons are also very dangerous. Russia's turned itself into a pariah state. It's very hard to do for almost anybody to do business with Russia, and over the long term, that's going to be catastrophic for the Russian economy. Well, David, Victor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, Ian, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I'm very grateful for the conversation. And again, I've been speaking with David Victor, who is a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative, which focuses on real-world strategies for bringing the world to nearly zero emissions of global warming gases. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics, The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming, and Global Warming Gridlock, Creating More Effective Strategies for Protecting the Planet. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.